Welcome to the podcast version of 32 Bar Cut, the show. A series for performers, about performers, made by performers. Every week, we give audition advice, share personal experiences, and sit down with fellow colleagues in the performing arts to chat about their life in the industry. If you are hearing this message, you are not currently a subscriber and will only be hearing the first half of the podcast. If you would like to hear the full interview, including the Curtain Call series, you'll want to head over to 32barcup.com, where you can find a link to our Patreon page. There you will have exclusive access to the entire video and private RSS podcast feed, as well as other subscriber-only content. Thanks for listening. Without further ado, on to the show. You may have seen him in Bikini Bottom or giving his roommate a hard time in Indoor Boys, but today this Broadway star is gracing us with his presence and sitting down and talking with us about what his life has been like to be a performer and a writer. Welcome to the show, Wesley Taylor. Yay! Hi. Hi. <laughs> I loved your musical intro. <laughs> Thank you. Austin wrote that and we sang it together in our little makeshift studio over here. I'm gesturing towards it because it is directly in front of me. <laughs> it's adorable. <laughs> Thank you. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? Although, I'm... how are you? What a loaded question, right? I know. I know. Well, when I say how are you, I really do mean how are you? Because I know everything is very different from how it was about a year ago. Um, yeah. we, before we started this interview, we were just chatting about how you were in rehearsals for Assassins and then boom, yeah. you know. So how are you? Yeah, I mean, it, again, it's, it's, I'm a little overwhelmed when I hear that question um, because it really makes you step back and think about it um, at, this, at this point in time. Um, I'm doing well, though. Uh, I really am. I think one thing about 2020 is that it really forced us all to take stock of our lives and like um, figure out what really matters and our priorities and, you know, healthy perspective. Um, so I, I'm doing well. How are you? Really? How am I really? Yeah. Um, I feel like today's a good day. I only had one little moment, um, uh -oh. but I think it's a, I think it is a, a day by day thing. Yeah. Um, and I agree with you and you, we're, we're having to take stock in what's important and what to prioritize. And I feel like I haven't done that in a very long time because mm -hmm. I'm very career focused and very career driven. Mm -hmm. So my family takes a back seat and important events take a back seat. And now I'm like, wait, was that really? the best choice, right. you know, I, do I not want my nieces and nephews to know who I am, you know? So yeah. I'm trying to work through that and what it looks like and, and trying to reconnect with people that I haven't connected with in a while. But for today, I, I feel good. I feel good. good. I'm good. excited you to get great. to talk with you. Yeah, Sam, you I'm look excited. great. Thank you. I see you're Little. doing a longer hair now. Yeah, it's just fully growing it out. You know, why not? <laughs> why, not? why not? I have no reason to cut it. Right. It's like winning COVID. Why not? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I've been doing some research on you because I like to research uh -oh. all of our guests, even the people like I know have known for years. I do a little research. Uh -huh. And um, in my researching, I found that you have been basically performing your whole life. Is this true? Pretty much. Yeah. Got bit, got bit with the bug pretty early on. Yeah. So, um, so when you say bit with the bug 
as a as a young performer, you know, in a in an art school and performing and everything, maybe in community theater, I don't know, summer programs. When did you decide that that's what you want to do for a living? Uh, <laughs> way too early. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, my my mom was a music teacher, so um, music was a part of our lives. When I say our, my, my sister and I, you know, we were always she was always putting us in church, singing singing in front of the church crowd. Um, and we were always, you know, around the piano, like singing, practicing the piano, music theory, that kind of thing. Um, but beyond music, I knew that I just got drunk off the sound of people laughing at me or like giving me any sort of attention. So um, I knew that I wanted to be like from a very early age, I wanted to be an actor. And so I uh, asked my parents to get me signed with an agency. I, I, I lived in Orlando, Florida, so it wasn't LA, it wasn't New York City, but there was entertainment. There was yeah. an industry there. And, um, and, you know, they got me an agent. I was signed by the age of nine doing the, amazing. you know, auditions for, you know, commercials and voiceovers and industrials and community theater, dinner theater, did, did all of that stuff. But, um, you know, it's funny that you call me a child actor because I, mean, I guess you didn't say it. it was like the idea of child actor. Like I, I looked to Macaulay Culkin, Macaulay Culkin and like Jonathan Taylor Thomas. And I was like, just so jealous of their Hollywood lives that I would just harass my parents. Like, can, can we please pay attention to my gifts and move <laughs> to Hollywood so that my dreams aren't stifled? And they were like, you're a child. Um, <laughs> like, just be a normal kid. Come on. Don't end up on drugs. Like, you know, don't don't go that wayward route of every other child star. And in hindsight, I'm very glad that I'm grateful that they, they put me through school in a normal sort of childhood, whatever that means. <laughs> I, um, I think that's important because, yeah, the grass is always greener, right? You see mm. what someone else is up to, especially when you're a kid. It's very black and white when you're a kid. No, you do this, you do that, you get this, done. That's but right. it's not that's that right. cut and dry for sure. That's, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I always wanted to, to perform because I liked that the, the feeling of singing and dancing and making people laugh and stuff. But I, I don't know that I was taking it all that seriously. You know, I just wanted mm. to be famous. I wanted to be a star, you know, mm -hmm. but I wasn't like... I want to be good, you know? And it wasn't until maybe high school, I went to an arts high school and, and, and then I was like, no, I actually want to maybe be the best that I can be at this and maybe learn and maybe study and maybe, you know, go to acting school, you know, what, what would that mean? So. So, um, do you still play piano now? I don't. Oh, it's I feel big, your pain. It, it, yeah. It's a big regret actually. And I have, I, I am not someone who, who believes in no regrets. I definitely have regrets in mm -hmm. my life. And that doesn't mean that like regrets don't teach you things and, and make you stronger people. But I do have regrets. And one of them is that I, I didn't keep up with it. We had to play an hour every day. We had to practice. And we had lessons. And then like after six years of that, um, they were like, okay, you can either continue with this instrument or switch to another instrument. And I chose the drums, which was a really dumb idea. <laughs> like, because I grew tired of that after a couple of years and I wasn't very good, but I was good at the piano and I should have stuck with it like my sister did. Oh, well. I feel your pain. I took yeah. piano lessons from 
nine until through college. And then I stopped and I can't, and I was, but I actually, I was never brilliant. You know, I had a lot of enthusiasm, but I wasn't a strong sight reader. Um, I really had to practice. My technique wasn't great. And Mm -hmm. I really didn't start learning theory until I was a senior in high school. So like my foundation- So you were just sort of like ear, ear, ear playing? No, no, no. I I had a proper teacher. She just wasn't really teaching us a lot of theory. Um, so I was learning like chordal structures, really learning chordal structures in, um, uh, theory class in high school, but yeah, yeah, I feel your pain. I I can definitely play my parts. I can learn my music. I can, you know, one eanda, two eanda, you know, write down the rhythms, but I cannot accompany myself. Like, wouldn't that be so brilliant? Yes. You know, it would save save money, save time. (laughs) It would, it would be, you know, I think that, you know, I'm a writer and, and I would be more inclined to write a musical, mm-hmm. you know, whereas, whereas I, that scares me, you know, I stay away from music. Yeah. You know? I've wanted, I've actually wanted to talk to you a lot about your writing. Should we yeah. jump, should we jump into that now? Sure. Yeah. Cause, um, so at, while I was doing my research, um, <laughs> <laughs> I came across the, the plays that you've already written. You've written, well, at least on Wikipedia, according to Wikipedia, you've written four plays, one of which you already did a developmental lab for. And so I was curious what that process was like to put on your own, your own workshop, your own lab. Yeah. Well, um, it's funny. I, I was always writing, you know, like e- I went to drama school and like that was a conservatory and you didn't have like too many academic, you had to take three years of academics in the morning for like an hour to get your BFA. And so I was like taking playwriting and I was taking, you know, and I was writing sketches and I was writing, you know, when I moved to New York, I was doing web series and I was, you know, and and it was really a hobby. It was really a, a creative outlet for me. But it, I, I, again, I, I just did not take it seriously. Um, and uh, and then the web series, the, the 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 second web series I did, it could be worse. Um, I sold to Hulu, and so the first moment wow. that I I got a paycheck for my writing, I was like, oh, maybe I should take this seriously. Maybe I should practice this more. Maybe I sh- this should become more of a daily thing. Um, and so then it did become more of a thing. And, you know, I had these short plays, you know, for, I would, I would um, collaborate with the Actors Fund and they would, you know, give me a venue like New World Stages. Uh, and I would just give them all the proceeds of like putting up a reading of a staged reading of my short plays. And, be able to, you know, fundraise for the Actors Fund while they gave me a space and sort of a showcase for my writing, you know. One of the stipulations was that I, you know, uh, stunt the, the roles so that they could make their money back. So, you know, I called on the fancy favors from the jobs I had done as an actor, you know, and recruiting Nathan Lane and Deborah Messing and Stockard Channing and, and people who I knew could could bring, you know, an audience. An audience. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so that started that I I was learning a lot about producing and development, you know, within the selling of the internet entities, I I sold a a short form script and and things like that. All this to say that it led to like four years ago, um, collaborating with Alex Wise. I don't know if you know Alex, but, um, he's become my writing partner and we, 
developed this this series, Indoor Boys, over the last few years, um, which started out really as just, again, a creative outlet because we were frustrated um, with what we were doing at the time. And then it got bigger and bigger and, and, and got away from us a little bit, just got more expensive and, and got more eyeballs on it. And then suddenly, you know, got an Emmy nomination and it's getting acquired by Here TV and now it's on Prime and all that. So, um, you know, the writing has really grown. And especially in the world of a 2020 pandemic, like when the acting career took a pause, because the writing was always taking the back seat to the acting. And once the acting career paused, like I've become a full-time writer. Like there's no way around it. I, I, I sit down at this desk for four or five hours a day with Alex over Zoom and we write. And we've, we've pumped out a few scripts just in the last year, uh, some full-length stuff. So it's, um, it's the silver lining that we've been able to be very productive during this time. As, as much as this time has sucked, you know? Absolutely. It's like um, we're all on sabbatical, a forced yeah. sabbatical, and now you have to really uh, hone in on, on uh, sure, your passions, but uh, what, what are we going to make of ourselves, you know? Yeah, you got to get a little resourceful. Yeah. You have to figure out how you can continue to be inspired mm-hmm. and continue to be challenged um, and continue to find reasons to, to get out of the bed and, and put art out into the ether. Absolutely. I, um, I've been watching Indoor Boys. Oh, <laughs> and it's it? hilarious. I am on season two, episode five, I think. Um, so I don't want to spoil it for anyone that is definitely going to go run and watch it now that we're talking about it. But that show is hilarious. Thank you. It is Please the, keep watching. Oh my gosh. I, I, I'm, if I had had more time before we came on to talk today, I would have yeah. like finished the whole thing. But then yeah. I was like, oh, well, we can't really, really talk about it because I'm going to spoil it for someone. <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, so Nate and Luke are hilarious and Thank complicated you. in just the perfect kind of ways. And I love it. I love it. And it's fun, too, because, I mean, I've only spent just a week with you and now the time that we're spending today. But yeah. I find you to be a really kind and giving person. <laughs> but here you are again playing the villain, you know, and it's hilarious. I mean, uh-huh. it's really great writing. And I love that you and Alex decided to make your own opportunities. And... You know, you talk about being frustrated, being in a place in your life where you were frustrated with how things were going, whatever that meant. And yeah. you, you took that frustration and you used it for your good. And now it's yeah. it's snowballed into something really incredible. So yeah. congratulations. Well, it's also, you. thank you. Thank you. It's also about like, I'm a very um, work-oriented person. I'm a workhorse. And mm-hmm. I found someone who's like just as much of a workaholic as I am, if not more, and we we figured out within the span of a few years how to really meld our voices and like kind of finish each other's sentences. Um, but that's one of the reasons why we jumped in in the first place is this industry doesn't always feel like that in terms of efficiency. Like mm. obviously, especially during a time like this, but like even cut to, you know, rewind four years ago when we were, we found ourselves in Los Angeles and he was doing a soap opera and I was, 
I had just sold a script, but it was just taking forever to develop it with the people in LA. And I think that there is a, a, a mutual frustration that we have in, in relying on other people <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, not everyone enjoys work. A lot of people enjoy the perks of work, but they would rather have a three-day weekend and get on their yacht and experience all the advantages and the blessings of being successful without like really enjoying the process of what made them successful. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, when you're waiting on correspondence of like someone to answer an email and it takes a week and a half, you know, I have no patience for that. So <laughs> one of the reasons why we are so productive is because we don't have patience. And so, <laughs> We take our negative traits and, and try to spin them into positive, productive traits. Um, well, I'm glad that you found someone to match that because I, I would imagine if, if one of you couldn't match that, this, this pairing wouldn't have been successful. <laughs> no. And in fact, I have, you know, obviously attempted to, to put a lot of creative ventures out into the universe before I met Alex and, you know, some more successful than others some partnerships more successful than others, some collaborations more, you know, it was really important and and special when I found Alex because it is a creative marriage. You know, it it very much is 50-50 and and you hold each other accountable. And sometimes you have to pick pick up the slack one day if you're feeling a little bit more um, on your cylinders than the other person. You know, it's, it's, it's such a partnership. It's a dance that you're like constantly navigating. Um, but it, but it's nice to have that accountability partner too. Um, and it's provided structure for me too. Cause before, before Alex, when I would be, when I would write, it would be all about when inspiration struck. So it would be like, if you get an idea at 11 o'clock at night, you are not going to sleep that night because you're going to write through the night until it gets out of your head. But with Alex, it's been wonderful because it lends itself to a nine to five structural job. Like I can, I don't know. It's like um, that inspiration is is structured, <laughs> which sounds like uh, counterintuitive to creativity, but it actually helps. Absolutely. I've heard that before from writers. I, I do not consider myself a writer, but I really love this sci-fi fantasy writer, um, Octavia Butler. And okay. she has a collection of short stories called something blood and something it's up there but um she has a an essay that she wrote about writing and how it needs structure and that you do need to wake up every day and write and not be the kind of writer that only writes when inspired because that's not that doesn't prove to be successful and you won't get better she said something like that and i'm misquoting this really poorly because I read it like three years ago and I'm, it's just coming to my mind now as you're speaking. It's real. Yeah. Yeah. If you like sci-fi, check Octavia Butler out. I mean, I will Octavia Butler. Yeah. 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 She's, she's, she's awesome. Um, so I am also curious about your, your venture, uh, into New York living, you know, um, I'm from Georgia, so I know what it's like to come from the South and uh, move to the big city. And it can be a little daunting, but I'm imagining young Wesley was probably (laughs) so ready because you already had your sights on the stars as a child. So now you're like, let's go. So did you? I I, I never looked back. I never looked back. It was, I was, well, first of all, I grew up in Orlando, Florida, 
which is a ridiculous place to grow up. You know, um, uh, I went to high school across the street from Universal Studios. I worked at Disney World. I did all the things. Um, and it felt, you know, as soon as I went to drama school in North Carolina and experienced a little bit of originality, you know, mom and pop shops and things that weren't, it just wasn't, in Orlando, everything was corporate, everything was chain restaurants, franchise and stuff like that. So, um, I definitely didn't miss Florida. Like I didn't, like no shame, like, sorry if I'm offending all of the Floridian listeners, but, but I didn't miss Florida um, I didn't have that real like homesick passion for it. North Carolina sort of became like a new home for me. But I, I knew from an early age that New York City was where I was destined to live. It was like, you know, my, my parents actually met um, and went to college in Nyack, New York, upstate. Okay. Um, and that's where they, they met. And then we, they moved down south when we were babies. So um, they had a connection to New York and we went up there when I was a kid and, and then, you know, went to the city to see a show, you know, Beauty and the Beast or something. And as soon as I got bitten with the bug, you know, I, we would come back to New York as a family on our, these like family vacations. And I would just give my dad like a list of shows that we needed to see. <laughs> and like, Cause they didn't know anything about theater, but I was like, we will be seeing Night Mother with Brenda Blethyn and Edie Falco, The Crucible with Laura Linney and Liam Neeson. We, you know, I was like 12. But, um, but you know, I, I, I was obsessed with New York. I was obsessed with the culture. And I, I, I dreamed of one day living there in a high rise, looking out on the Hudson, going to, you know, my Broadway show. And, you know, it was, that was the dream. Um, so yeah, I always knew I was gonna I was gonna go. My fiance Isaac was born and raised in Greensboro, North Carolina, and the first time he ever moved, you know, he went to drama school at North Carolina as well. So the first time he ever lived away from home was when he moved to the city right after college. So that was a a much bigger culture shock for him, absolutely, and a much bigger adjustment for a human being, because I had gone to New York so much growing up. Not that we were like rolling in money, but like even in college. I would like buy $20 China bus tickets to, to drive five hours up and, uh, you know, stand in student rush, you know, front row or standing room or whatever to see as much Broadway shows as I could. So yeah, it was always part of the plan. All right. So it sounds like you moving to New York was not daunting. You just got off the plane, walked into your high rise, looking over the Hudson. (laughs) Definitely didn't walk into my high rise. (laughs) Definitely walked into like a, what do they call them? Those, um, those, those apartments where you have to like go through the bedrooms to get to your bedroom. A shotgun? A railway apartment. Oh, railway. Yeah, Yeah, that's it. Railway. Yeah. Yeah. I lived with like four of my college roommates in a Brooklyn, like railway apartment, you know, but you do it though. That's what you do. Yeah. Because it's it's not really about living in style at that point. It's just, I need to have a place. I need shelter so that I can go on my auditions and make right. this happen. That's right. That's right. I knew it would be tough, but the, the, the pounding of the pavement was a romantic concept to me. You know, yeah. it was all sort of like a poetic experience of like struggling, you know. Yeah, you well, it sounds like you welcomed it like... Um, like that, uh, this like not like La Boheme, but yeah, you know, you see these artists and they don't mind being poor because they're living yeah. this the life, yeah, yeah this, that they want. Yeah. Um. So 
your your Broadway debut was Rock of Ages, which yeah, is pretty was... cool. You originate the role of Franz. Yeah. So uh, what was that like? Did you do an out-of-town run beforehand? Did you join the project at another time? It was ridiculous. Yeah, it was a, it was a very stupid, like, silly Broadway debut. It was the gift that kept giving. It, it's kind of a blur when I think back on it because I, I'm sure I took it for granted, you know, in the sense that it happened very early after I graduated where there was this off-Broadway show and I was going to go on tour with Greece. Like, I had... I had gotten this national tour as Sunny in Greece, and I was about to hit the road for a year. And this off-Broadway show, um, which I didn't, you know, I, I have to say, I had just done a lot of Shakespeare in, in college. I, I think I, I was feeling like above <laughs> a jukebox musical, you know, like this off-Broadway, like 80s, trashy, bubblegum sort of thing. I, I was just like, oh, this is not going to be successful. You know, like this is going to close like immediately. It's not going to be it's very low brow, you know, because I was a snob. I was a conservatory snob at the time. <laughs> um, but my agents were like, no, you should stay in town and do this. You know, you should, you know, because if you go on tour, like, you know, you disappear for a year. So yeah. stay in town and do this. Even if it doesn't do well, more people will see you in it, you know. So um, it was good advice, obviously. Um, it was, you know, this, the, the thing that blew everyone's expectations away. I mean, it transferred to Broadway. It got great reviews. It ran for six years, you know? So, um, yeah, I just, I had no expectations for that show and it just kept exceeding those lack of expectations. Um, so, yeah. That's the best, that's the best way for a Broadway debut, right? That, uh, that you have no expectations, so you can't be disappointed. And then yeah. it turns out to be something incredible for you. I was so lucky. Yeah, it was such, I had this 11 o'clock number that hit me with your best shot. And it was just like such a stupid little gift. You know, it was, it was really a nice, nice time. I would have loved to have seen you do that. Because listening to your voice and the reading that we did together... You have such an amazing rocker voice. And I don't know... I, I don't know if it's because, like, to hear you speak, you're kind of like a high baritone type of timbre. But when you add that to, like, a rock sound with your range, it's like a rich powerhouse. You have you're very you're very kind. I will say, just <laughs> in the reading that I sang, that the <laughs> the reading that we did together, the twelve, all of my music was lowered. Just so you know, it was all taken down <laughs> a, a full. <laughs> I wish I, that they had taken the mine down. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could have asked. I just flat out asked. Yeah. I, I will like, do that next time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's pretty much what I do every process, every single <laughs> job I ever get. Um, no, I'm a baritone, tr- like true, a true baritone. Um, I have a tenor note or two, but that's because. I've had to figure out how to croak them out because, you know, musicals aren't written for baritones. They just aren't, you know, for, for, for men, if you're not a tenor, you're not going to have a a career in musical theater if you want to, you know, have lead roles. So, so, you know, it's about navigating that and figuring it out and playing supporting characters, but uh, (laughs) you know, the composers don't write for, for low voices, you know, it's just not exciting for the audience. Um, So so I see an opening 
for you to collaborate with a composer with the witty writing that you have and then make sure that you have a leading man who's a baritone so you can start changing this whole narrative. Because it's unfair. It's unfair. I don't think that leading ladies should always be sopranos either. It's really unfair. uh, I'm sure you know Leslie Margarita, but she does a huge campaign on this, uh, on like stop shaming singers for not having an upper, you know, for having that higher register, you know, Mm -hmm. like there are gorgeous singers who live in the basement. Um, You know, alto women should not be shamed for not being sopranos. You know, it's a, it's a, it's its own thing. It is. It's interesting that, um, I don't know if it's a human quality. I mean, I'm sure it is that we, we, uh, admire and validate extremes, right? Mm. So if you were, a, you know, a basso that's like singing, you know, notes that you only hear the piano play or the bass yeah. play, then you would be celebrated. But yeah. if, and if you're, you know, squeaking out, well, probably not squeaking out, but floating out high E's and F's, then everyone is just so excited. Yeah. But you can have an amazing, beautiful timbre and just sing, you know, an octave and a half. What's yeah. wrong with that? That's right. <laughs> I see nothing wrong with it. I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with her. Let's. It's let's... funny. I, you know, I, I, I was joking before, but I am serious that almost every process I go into, I ask for for things to be lowered. And I know it disappoints people because I know they want it in its original sort of experience. Mm-hmm. But um, almost never do people say no. There was one time I did a, the Who's Tommy at Kennedy Center. And I ended up figuring out how to, how to sing it. But I played Cousin Kevin. And he has some really high music. And I remember because there was only 10 days of rehearsal, you know, before you're doing the show. And so I was like, I don't have a rehearsal process. I don't have time to get this conditioned in my voice and like to be able to sing this without bleeding, you know, like, how am I going to do this? Yeah. But they weren't, they weren't going to budge. Um, most, really? most, most people let you lower their stuff, but the, the who just, you know, they were very precious about their music. And I, you know, uh, who am I to, to try to change like that original thing? But I remember being just terrified because it was the first time I had been met with a no for changing the music. And uh, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, you know, get through this, pull this off, you know? And I, I, I think I did, but maybe out of fear and just like, (laughs) just because I had to, um, but yeah, I, I even went into Assassins and 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 got them to to take it down half a step because um, it was a super high part. And Sondheim, when I met him, the first thing he said to me was like, "Who are you playing again?" And I was like, "Zengara." And he was like, "Be careful, it's so loud and so high. Protect your voice, pace yourself." And I was like, "Jesus, that doesn't make me feel better." <laughs> first thing Sondheim tells me. Um, so. Oh man, yeah, I um. As we were talking before we got started, I, I I was telling you that I lost my voice that day we did the presentation. Um, and I, it did was you, actually- Did the, you take some prednisone? Did you, what did you do? It was the biggest loss I've had. I, I was oh. actually shocked. I started the the presentation at 10 a.m. And when we finished at noon, thank God, you know, for John and how quickly he's just like, he's like, yeah. okay, we're done. Everybody leave. But yeah. um, I couldn't even like- 
say hello to a friend I ran into outside of, uh, what was it, at Pearl or Ripley? It doesn't matter. But I, um, I had to go to voice therapy and I had to work with a teacher on getting everything like back. And I had a couple more workshops that summer that I had to do. And I did have to take prednisone shots and, um, just kind of fake it because there's such a stigma around losing your voice that it's like you've done something wrong or whatever. I think for me, when that happened, it was simply because I was singing Kiss Me Kate and then singing rock music during the day and my voice just couldn't take the the switch. I was asking too much. Not to mention (laughs) just the nature of double duty. I mean, yeah. Not just about different styles. I mean, Adrian, you were doing eight shows a week. Like, you know, <laughs> so when you're doing eight shows a week and you're double dutying and doing a full workload during the day of like music, like yeah. belting your face off, like, yeah, that's a recipe for disaster. I remember every time I was in a Broadway show and I did something outside, like extracurricular, I feel like every time I would lose my voice or almost lose my voice or something or you get sick, or you just get really worn down, and then you end up having to call out of a show. That's why stage managers really don't want you to take on workshops and and readings, because they know you're going to eventually call out. Absolutely. Uh, But, you know, it's it's hard to sit in a long run of a show and and not participate in in new work and development, because, you know, you got to keep your creative juices flowing. So those are like, you know, blessings, obviously, to, to work on something else. But the the heavy vocal demands uh, are not forgiving. No, and I couldn't say no. I couldn't say no because I was excited to do the reading, yeah, and yeah. and so I was like, I'm not, I'm not saying no to this. I'm going to make it work. And yeah. the, it's funny, you you can have as much willpower in the world, but your body is your body. Your body can only handle so much. You that's can, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting to think about this this year that we've had off the boards and. Um, or, uh, you know, not performing in general. And, you know, in some regards, I'm like, when I start singing in the car, or like if I have to sing for some virtual responsibility, I'm like, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> like, I, I don't do that. Like, it's not what I do. I don't warm up. I don't sing. You know, I sing in the car, but like, I'm not doing this every day. And your voice is a muscle, which means it needs to be conditioned. Mm-hmm. You know, it needs to be in practice for it to produce what it used to produce. But at the same time, what a blessing to have time for healing too, because the commercialism of New York city theater means that you are always, uh, overextended. I think if you want to make a living, mm-hmm. you know, like if, if you're lucky, you're doing eight shows a week while you're doing a workshop, while you're doing a concert, while you're, you know, and your voice wasn't designed for that. And so you're, you know, popping steroids, you're, you know, you're, you're working, you're, you're, you're working past inflammation. Like it's just not good. And so, you know, it's nice to take a year off of needing steroids and, and, you know, pushing yourself to the brink. Absolutely. I, um, I think right along with that is there's a mentality that if you're not doing all these things, then you're not a hard worker or you're not taking it seriously or, you know, you're just coasting. But um, I really respect actors that, that say no because they know it's too much. Mm. I've had such a hard time in the past saying no, because I want to take on every opportunity. Um, And that that also goes with, um, 
auditions. You yeah. know, like your only power as an actor is to say no. <laughs> and like we forget that. I don't know. Well, first of all, we love working. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't be an actor at the at our age. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't commit to make-believe in your adult life for as long as you have unless you really loved it, unless there was no other way around it, yeah. you know? So you love it. You're committed. It's what you've signed up for, subscribed to for life. And you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> I just um, – if we say no, if we're not like, if it's not an enthusiastic yes, if you're reading the materials and you don't feel connected or you resonate with it and you're just yes because you're scared of saying no, you know, you're actually doing yourself a huge disservice because people respect you when you're selective because it means that you have a clear idea of what you want. And that's to be respected. I agree. I think, I, th- I, th- I think too, um, I don't know if it's upbringing or if it's if it's just being a black woman. Sometimes oh. I feel like saying no is going to cost me later uh, on. You like know, it, like it looks like a bad attitude or something. Yeah, like it could be a bad attitude, or it could be, oh well, we took a chance on you and you said no, so we're just, you know, we'll never think of you again. And and that right. could all very well be in my head. It might not be real, but yeah. um. I recently, not recently, like uh, uh, about a year or so ago, uh, did a reading that was eventually going to do it, you know, a run, a tour, and then go to Broadway. And I thought thought the project was going to be great. But then when they came back with, hey, do you want to do it? I thought, no. I I thought, (laughs) I was like, the role that I was in didn't bring me joy. And... I just didn't want to tour for uh, six months or a year and then come back and do it just for the sake of doing another Broadway show. And I do think it's going to be incredible and it's going to, you know, knock people's socks off and it's going to be great. I just won't be a part of that. And I'm fine with that because I didn't want to do the role. And um, I don't know. I, I guess I was thinking, oh, is this director going to hate me or never want to, you know, consider me for something else. Uh, And that's just, you know, it's a chance you have to take because you can't put your uh, destiny or your career in someone else's hands and, and uh, do whatever they want in hopes that they don't blacklist you or or not want to work with you again. Yeah. Yeah. No wrong reasons. Yeah. Yeah. You really have to listen to yourself in this, in this life. I think we're realizing that more culturally too, just like, like artists in general are like, no, I need to listen to myself. Actually. I need to like follow my instinct here. Definitely. And I think the, the sabbatical we're all taking is making that a little uh, clear, making that voice clearer. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, just in the sense that like, I mean, I'm sure you relate to this, but like when you're in New York, the amount of readings and concerts that you are asked to do on a regular basis, you know, and the concerts are like, you know, 54 below sings Solange or, (laughs) you know, like it's, it's just, and you feel like you have to keep being visible, keep being relevant, Mm -hmm. keep being seen and talked about and all these things. 
And this last year really smacked me in the face for all of that noise mm. because like, you know, all of a sudden every day you're getting these like virtual requests for charity performances. Uh, can you do this for my theater company? Can you do this for my podcast? Can you do this? I mean, like I'm happy to do this with you. I enjoy being around you. I, I, you know, but not everything is going to bring me joy. And I early, early on, I think during all this got a lot better at saying no. And it, it also got easier. I think collectively for the human race to be like, everyone um, is allowed to say no, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) Um, we're all going through our own moment right now. And you don't know where that person is emotionally, financially, mentally, spiritually, you know, there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression, a lot of things happening right now, a lot of displacement um, and not knowing the future. And, you know, we're going through a sort of international collective trauma, like globally, I think. And so there is room for that forgiveness, I think. Um, but I think it's a great thing. Again, just the, the shifting of priorities of like, what is important to me? Yeah. Doing every concert and reading is not important to me. Mm-hmm. I want to do the readings and concerts when I really believe in that creative and I want to help them fully realize their thing. But I don't need for me to constantly be busy scurrying about these things just to like facilitate a facade or like an appearance of being busy or in demand or whatever the hell, you know, you're really speaking to something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also like just, just in the sense that when you get invited to a screening or premiere or something, you know, this, this thing of like, I have to keep up this illusion of prosperity. I have to like go get a new suit to, or go get new clothes, new outfit to wear for this thing, which I'm just going to return the next day. Like, cause I'm not, rich, but Mm -hmm. I have to make the industry think I'm doing well financially so that they keep hiring me. You know, it's like so messed up. And it really was this year that just like took me down a few pegs and was like, actually, everyone is actually seeing into each other's homes on a regular (laughs) basis now. Like there's no more facade, you know, stop hiding behind this illusion, you know, I love that. I, it's interesting that we are, I mean, and I, part of it is social media too. It makes things mm-hmm. difficult, but I think that to be in a craft where you become someone else or you really mm-hmm. try to find their truth and who they are as a character, mm-hmm. it is uh, interesting that we are living our lives trying to keep up with the Joneses in yeah. spite of trying to have truth and realness in what we bring to the stage. Um yeah. But yeah, I remember when I first moved to New York, uh, being a bit overwhelmed by needing to be stylish and walking mm. in, in, in walking to and from the stage door. I was oh, like, wow. "Oh no, this isn't me. I don't <laughs> like. I don't know how to pull this off. I'm tired. I just washed orange paint off my face. Can I just leave the theater bare face? Like, do I really have to put on another like?" 
layer of makeup just so I can do stage door. I really don't want to do this. Like yeah, I remember struggling, God. struggling with that and, and deciding, no, this is how I look. I have on a, a, a scully and a puff coat. And this is how I look. If you want me to sign your, your, your playbill, I'm more than happy to, but this, this is who I am. And it took me a while yeah. to be okay with that. That's real. Yeah, yeah, the stage door culture in general is, I mean, that's a fairly new age thing because, like, that, that's, they weren't dealing with that 30, 40 years ago. I Absolutely mean, it was, not. It really has become this new digital age, especially um, because everyone wants a selfie and mm-hmm. everyone, I mean, that's more important than the show is like them getting, them meeting the person and getting the selfie, unfortunately. So um, it became like a, an addendum, like a, 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 a an extra part of your job. And yeah, I under, I mean, I, <laughs> I hear you. At the same time, of course, I, I grew up, I went to the stage door. You know I went to the stage <laughs> door. So like, I remember being outside of Take Me Out and meeting Dennis O'Hare after seeing the show twice in one day and being <laughs> like, Dennis, I'm <laughs> writing a paper on because I was going to that arts high school, so I was like, I'm writing a paper on Richard Greenberg, the playwright of Take Me Out, and then it Adrian and I hope that you have enjoyed listening to the show thus far. If you'd like to hear the full interview and get access to the curtain call, head on over to 32barcut.com, where you can find a link to our Patreon page. There you will have exclusive access to the entire video collection and private RSS podcast feed, as well as other subscriber-only content. All right, that's all I got. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.